started it, I think. All right, we're going to go ahead and get started while the last few of you are checking in your homework there. So if you're in line, you can listen up. Years ago, I took a short-term missions trip when I was in seminary from Los Angeles to Berlin. And that was an interesting experience to be able to go to another country and be on the other side of the language barrier. Have you ever been someplace where most people didn't speak English? and you couldn't communicate because you didn't know the, the language. It's kind of a weird feeling. And you feel very isolated, you feel very disconnected from the culture. Because we went to East Berlin, and back in the late 90s, a lot of the East Berliners didn't speak English because they'd grown up under communism. And of course, West Berlin, you'd find a lot of people who spoke English, but not on the East side. Now the wall was already down at that point. There was no longer an East and West, but a lot of the culture still remained in place from the uh, Cold War, the years of division. And so one morning we were there in Berlin and my team was getting ready and some of us were taking too long to get ready and so we were supposed to meet with one of the, the Christians there and he was going to take us to another site that morning to do some whatever, can't remember. And so when we got there a few minutes late, he said very sternly uh, with his German accent, that in, in Germany, there are two people who are never late, soldiers and Christians. Do not be late again. And uh, we were not used to getting sternly rebuked like that. And I think that was a, a good reminder that we as Christians want to uphold the highest of standards. We want to start to develop that at a young age and create a different culture than the culture that we live in where people don't really care about being punctual. Now, I know that punctuality is not a fruit of the Spirit. Uh, there's no Bible verses about being early or, or things like that. But, as a, you know, part of our heritage, uh, in our culture, we do like to be on time. We do like to be early. As you know, one person uh, said to his family, pastor was getting ready for church, and he said, if we're not early, we're late. And so keep in mind that uh, you want to be early. And you be early so that you can minister to others, so that you can be fully prepared. And it's just a, a good way, I think, of, of living life uh, so that things proceed in a, a timely manner. So, take that exhortation for what you will. Alright, so today we are going to get caught up on our hermeneutics readings and exams. They're called exams, but really they're more like quizzes. Uh, I'll use their term, exam, but don't get the idea that it's more than just a, a little review quiz that's supposed to help you check and see whether or not you're getting what you're supposed to out of the reading material. So we're going to go over those in class today so you can be sure that you got the right answers and it's a good way for us to review the material. And then at the end, if we have time, we'll do some small group discussion on the discussion questions. So there's a number of multiple choice with each quiz, but then there were two discussion questions or thought questions at the end of each chapter, so we'll break into our small groups and discuss those uh, questions at the end. Um, also, if we have time today, we're going to do a little lecture on how we got our English Bible. That's going to tie in with textual criticism and the history of the English Bible, which I think is helpful at this point in our study of hermeneutics. So as we've been transitioning from our study of 
philosophy and largely secular humanist philosophy and the dead end that secular humanist philosophy has cornered themselves into. They basically killed God, they killed philosophy, they killed art, they now began to kill science. And so you see that that is a dead end. And what we mean by secular human philosophy is that reasoning that is based upon humans as the measure of all things. Uh, by what standard? Humanism measures things according to the standard of humans. But humans need to be measured according to a standard. And that standard by which we measure humanity in good philosophy is that the standard of God. And how do we know anything about God? Well, we can make our guesses. But the best way to know about God is to study the Bible. And so you see how the connection between Francis Schaeffer's book, How Should We Then Live?, with this book that we're using on uh, Bible interpretation, you see the connection there, versus the, the no standard versus the standard of God's word. And that's the key difference here. So you want to know how to study God's word so that you're using the standard properly and accurately and you can build your worldview based upon that standard. Now, with that in mind, let's go ahead and open up, well, let me first, uh, before we open up our books, uh, hopefully you have uh, an exam booklet where you've printed them out and you've got them with you today. Before we do that, I want to give you the assignment that you'll be doing for this week that's due next week. I want you to have your speeches ready to go next week. So I'm not giving you as much time to prepare speeches, this is the second round. I'm not giving you much homework besides your speeches. And so uh, you should have already got your outline and done most of your research this previous week. Now you need to transfer that outline to your note cards following the same process that we did last time. So you won't be uh, writing out your speech. I think some of you had a difficulty when you wrote out your speech. You just wanted to transfer the whole written speech to your note cards and you basically like read your speech from your note cards. We're not going to do that. We're going to just have a keyword outline on the note cards. Now, if there's some statistics or a quote that you want to make sure you get right, you can put that on your note cards. But most of what's on your note cards is just a, a keyword outline, just a, a word that's going to remind you of what your next point is. And then you practice using that keyword outline. And each time you practice, it's going to come out a little bit different. That's part of extemporaneous speaking. I'm up here right now speaking extemporaneously. I've thought about what I'm going to say. I've got some notes on what I'm going to say. But I don't know how it's going to come out. It comes out differently each time. And that's the way it is with public speaking in general. That's how I want to train you uh, for public speaking. So, any questions about the speech preparation and the keyword outline? Um, are we allowed to write an essay if we have the time? Or should we just go straight forward? If you really want to, I won't forbid it. Um, but I would not use that uh, when you're creating your... Uh, note cards. So if you do it, don't use it when you're creating the note cards, just use your outline. Yeah. Yes, yeah. The grading system and all that's going to be the same. I might uh, be a little bit more strict this time since you kind of know what's going on. So wait, do we not need note cards this time? If you're you need not... note cards. So we have to have note cards, but we can't put a lot of notes on. You just keyword outline. Uh, so like point one, you know. Uh, the title of point one, or you know, two or three words that describes it, and then you know your subpoints, just a, a word or two, 
maybe a, a word about what illustration you're going to use or a statistic that you're going to be putting in there, something along those lines. So uh, if you have questions and you want to feedback, you know, take a picture of your outline, send it to me, or it's, uh, if it's a, a file that you can send, you can send me your outline and I can give you some pointers if you're heading in the right direction or what you might improve on. I'm willing to do that. We got a pretty good sized class, but uh, I, I can do I can do some of that. Um, now, the other thing I want you to do this week is continue reading in the hermeneutics book. So just one chapter, they're not very long. So read chapter five and do the exam slash quiz at the end of the chapter. Make sure that as you're doing your hermeneutics reading and uh, doing the exam, well, specifically the reading. As you're doing the reading, make sure that you have an open Bible in front of you and that you are looking up the verses that are being used as the illustration for each principle. That way you are examining for yourselves whether or not the point that he is making is a valid point. And that's good to be doing. That You want to start that habit. and You don't just want to say, well, he's the expert, he's the Bible scholar, I'm just going to trust that everything that he says is fine. No, you've got to check it out yourself and get into that habit of checking it out. And there have been several places already in the book where I've looked at it and I'm like, eh, I don't know if that point is, if that verse exactly proves the point that you're trying to make. Um, I, I love the book. I think it's doing a great job, but uh, no, nothing's perfect, right? Um, including yourself. So, let's go ahead and open up our quiz book and take a look at exam number one. As you're turning to exam number one, I'll remind you of the hermeneutics chart that we have at the introduction of the book, where we see that the Word of God has been given to us in a particular history, through a history, through a culture, but that because of the inspiration of Scripture, we have an inerrant Word of God in the midst of that culture. And no culture is without error, without sin, but the Word of God is kept from the error and sin of its ancient history and culture through the process of inspiration. Then we recognize what books have been inspired through the process of canonization, and then we get back to the original text of those books through textual criticism, and with that in mind, then we're willing and able to get to the meaning of God's word through exegesis. And when we say meaning, we're not saying, what does it mean to me? We're saying the meaning here through exegesis is, what does it mean in its own context? What is the objective meaning of God's word? There's nothing wrong with subjective meaning, and we will get to subjective meaning of scripture. It's important to ask the question, what does scripture mean to me? But that's not where we start. We start with, what does the scripture mean in itself? What is the objective meaning? And from the objective, then you can get a proper subjective application of God's word. So we're not deriding subjectivity, but we're putting it in its proper place. That objectivity rules and subjectivity follows. So, exegesis is the process of objectively determining the meaning of God's word in its own context using the principles of hermeneutics. And so the principles of hermeneutics, we've got the first 19 here on this chart, and there's, uh, I think, 27 in the book. 
And so we've gotten up to number nine. Our reading this week was just one of these principles. And so we got to check out the historical and cultural background. But let's go ahead and review the first nine principles for biblical interpretation as we go through the exam together. As we do this, you'll be able to see whether you got the answers to the exam correct. All right, so question number one. The first principle for interpreting the Bible is which one? Yes, that's letter B. That's there. You see it right there. Uh, principle number one. Meditate, pray, obey, and be open. Now, what does it mean to meditate? When the, the author says uh, one of the first principles, well, the first principle that he gives us uh, for biblical interpretation is that you need to meditate. What is, what is meditation? What's that mean? In the author, what's the author saying? Yeah? Right. So we're not talking about, you know, some kind of Eastern transcendental meditation from uh, Buddhism or Hinduism. But instead, we're talking about biblical meditation. And in biblical meditation, instead of emptying the mind, you're filling the mind with God's word. So you're asking questions like who, what, when, where, why, how. And you're thinking through all that carefully according to the text. That's meditating on scripture. So the... Engaging your critical thinking facilities on the text itself. And then uh, where it says be open, that's another one here that I wanted to ask a question about. What, is, what does the author mean when he says we need to be open? Yeah? Uh, be open to what the scripture is teaching us. Yes, so we're not going to scripture in order to just confirm our innate biases and to say, well, this is what I've been taught, so I'm going to you know, say that that's what the Bible teaches, or this is what my group likes, or this is what I feel like. Uh, that's not being open to the message of the text. That's being kind of closed-minded as to this is what I want to believe and what I already believe. So to be open means you recognize that you don't know everything, and that your group doesn't know everything, and that you're ready to be taught by God's Word. So there's a humility there before the text. And that's what leads us to the process of exegesis instead of eisegesis. What's eisegesis? Putting meaning into the text before you've read it. Yeah. So we take our bucket of water, uh, like the bucket here, and we bring it from our culture and our history, personal or group, and we dump it into the well. And we say that's part of God's word. And that's what we don't want to do. We don't want to be dumping our water into God's water and say, this is the word of God. That's confusing the, the word of man with the word of God. That's what happens if we read into the text with eisegesis. So we need to be open to let the scriptures correct our culture and our understanding and our beliefs, including our Christian understanding, our Christian culture. There's lots of different Christian uh, movements, lots of different Christian teachings, and so we need to be open to what the scripture says and allow it to challenge us. And this book probably will uh, present some different interpretations of important passages in the Bible than what you've been taught or what you've believed. And so then you have to be open and say, well, is he right? Or is what I've been taught before right? And you can't just make your decision based upon uh, who your friends are. You have to make your decision based upon an objective determination of the meaning of scripture 
in its own context. Right there. Alright. Number two. Biblical meditation is what? What's biblical meditation? We just talked about it. Yeah? Um, it's an object, objective mental exercise that focuses on the Bible text. Good. So subjective focuses on ourselves. Objective focuses on the Bible text. Now, as I said, there's nothing wrong with subjectivity. Uh, there, that We should say, well, this text, what, how, what meaning does it have in relationship to me? That's what subjective means. Objective means in relationship to the object. What is the meaning of the text in itself? Subjective means, what is the meaning in relationship to me? Now, if I'm not a Christian, and I'm reading John chapter 3, verse 16, that God so loved the world, that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life, I can determine what the objective meaning of that text is, but if I just stop there, and I don't say, well, what does this mean for me? Well, then I won't become a Christian. I might have an understanding of what the text means in itself, but until I apply it to myself and say, well, I need to repent of my sins and believe in Jesus Christ so that I can have eternal life, that's, that's a subjective response to the objective meaning of God's word. Okay? So, uh, as the text stresses and emphasizes the importance of objectivity, I don't want us to lose sight of the importance of subjectivity in its proper place. All right? Number three, according to Acts 17, 10 through 12, the Bereans were good examples of what? What do you guys have? You guys got your exam in front of you? Yeah? Yeah. Meditating on scripture and memorizing it. They were probably a good example of that, but I have letter C as the correct answer. Some of these have uh, multiple answers that, that are kind of right or look right. But then, if you go back and look at the, the chapter, it'll usually help you to figure out which one is the one that the chapter was bringing out. And so, letter C, bringing their views in line with what they learned. That they were learning from the scriptures, and they were willing to, to change what they believed according to that in Acts 17, 10 through 12. Number four, assuming the clarity of scripture. Uh, here we have principle number two, assume the clarity of scripture. And their question uh, is, what does that mean? So, letter four, what, uh, number four, what letter did you have? Yeah? D. D, correct. Uh, all of the above. So, let's look at the all of the above. What does it mean that the scripture is clear? It means the Bible has been purposefully written for us to understand. God is not trying to hide the truth. He's trying to communicate truth. And he's a very good communicator. He's not a bad communicator. So, that... It has been written in order to be understood. Secondly, we should take a common sense approach to the meaning. That the way we normally understand things is the way that the Bible should be understood. So we shouldn't be looking for secret codes in the Bible to find out secret meaning in the Bible that is hidden there. A number of years ago, people would take these uh, computer complex, uh, complex equations, plug them into the computer, and pick out certain letters from the Bible text, and then those certain letters would maybe spell something from, from history, something about World War II or Napoleon, and they say, look, you know, we got the secret code that is revealing these prophecies in the Bible. And people publish books and buy those books, and they're like, wow, look at this new amazing proof for the uh, inspiration of scripture. And no, 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 you could do that same thing with Moby Dick, 
Uh, it's just a, a random number generator and you put certain letters together, you're going to come up with some of these types of things. Um, that's not how God gave us the Bible. That's not how we're supposed to interpret the Bible. We take it in a, a normal sense, that God has written a book, he wants us to read it and understand the book just like we would understand any other communication. Uh, and then letter C, uh, also part of the clarity of Scripture, the human authors did not deliberately mask the true meaning. So there's not some higher elevated meaning that only people with great wisdom and insight are able to see, but the Bible is written so that uh, anybody can, can read it and understand it if they have faith. And that's one of the keys right there. Is you have to believe it in order to really see it and understand it. The most important principle of hermeneutics is probably faith. I don't know if the book emphasizes that like I would like it to. All right. Turning the page, number five, which of the following would count as a very good reason for not going with the obvious meaning of a text, according to the second principle? Second principle, the clarity, we just go with the, the normal, the obvious meaning, but there are some cases where what seems obvious is actually not the meaning of the text, and so let's see which one of these would, would count as a very good reason for not going with the obvious meaning. So number five, what uh, did you have there? What letter? Yeah. That's right. Um, if there are other clear scriptures contradicting the straightforward meaning. Um, most famous example of this that was in the text is the cutting off of the hand or the, the gouging out of the eye. That if your hand causes you to sin or if your eye causes you to sin, cast it out. Um, the Bible uh, does not say that it... That in fact, it contradicts the idea that sin comes from your eye or sin comes from your hand. And so this is clearly a metaphor that is being used that you're supposed to take drastic action against sin in your heart. So if there's a, the eye of your heart or the hand of your heart that needs to be cut off and thrown away. This is what is known as the doctrine of mortification. And I love throwing out the old doctrine words that don't get used anymore. There's a heavy metal band back in the... Uh, 80s called Mortification, and they were a Christian band, and, uh, you know, if, as, as much as heavy metal can be Christian, uh, but anyway, that's a sidetrack, so Mortification, cutting off the hand, uh, not literally, uh, metaphorically, and so that's an example where the plain or natural meaning is not the intended meaning, but we have a metaphor. Number six. How many principles are usually helpful in determining the meaning of a Bible text? How many principles are usually helpful in determining the meaning of a Bible text? What uh, letter did you have for that? Girls, you got your quiz with you? What letter? C. Yeah, C. Six is C. Seven. Um, so out of all these Bible principles, there's going to be several that will be important in each text that you're looking at. Alright, then number seven, the Bible was originally written in what languages? Yep. Hebrew, Greek, and Aramaic. That's right. Hebrew, Greek, and Aramaic. Just a little bit of Aramaic in the Old Testament. Parts of the book of Daniel. And, uh, which other book? I forget at the moment. Um, Aramaic is closely related to Hebrew. It'd be kind of like Spanish and Portuguese. That if you speak Spanish, you'll recognize a lot of that in Portuguese and vice versa. Uh, then number eight, 
To stress the priority of the original languages means to study both the blank and the blank of the original languages. Which letter did you have for that, girls? A. A is A, yes. You're going to study the vocabulary and the grammar. And we showed you how to use tools to study the grammar, uh, or excuse me, to study the vocabulary of the original writings. You don't have to know Greek, you don't have to know Hebrew. Use the concordance and it will tell you which Greek, which Hebrew word is being used and you can look up that word in a uh, dictionary of the Greek and Hebrew of the Bible. So if you have a, a Greek dictionary and you've got concordance, you can do a lot of word study without knowing anything about Greek, which is pretty cool. And that's what I did before I learned Greek. And that's what I recommend you do as you will be putting these principles into practice in doing your own Bible study and preparing your own Bible lesson at the end of this course. Number nine, reading back the meaning of an English word into the original Hebrew or Greek word. What? Which letter? D. D. Nine is D. That's correct. It often leads to misunderstanding the real meaning. Um, now, the meaning of a word is determined by its usage. It's not determined by where it came from. It's not determined by uh, what comes, you know, hundreds of years or thousands of years later. The meaning of a word is determined by its usage in its own time and place. And that changes. The words are used differently. And that's why we have updated translations of the Bible. In the King James Version of the Bible, it says that, that we are a peculiar people. And most people hear the word peculiar nowadays, and they think that means strange or weird. And so Christians are just weird people. And that's not what the text is saying. Because when they translated it from the Greek into the English back in the 17th century, peculiar meant special. Uh, it meant chosen. And so that's why it's good to update our translations as language changes and words change meanings. So you don't read the, the newest meaning of the word back into the old text. A couple of weeks ago, I was... Uh, critiquing what is known as the, uh, the Atheist Bible. Uh, what was it? it wasn't called the Atheist Bible. It's the Skeptics. The Skeptics Bible. The Skeptics Annotated Bible. And this is something they were doing quite a lot, that they would take the English translation of the King James Version and talk about how ridiculous it is uh, according to what the words mean now instead of what the words meant when the King James was being translated. And that's not a valid critique of the Bible to say, well, this old English translation sounds ridiculous now. Um, that we've got updated translations and we recognize that words change meaning. You playing volleyball down there? <laughs> All right, so number 10. When Jesus quoted God saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, which of the letters did you have for number 10? Nobody knows? B. B. That's right. Uh, letter B, he was showing that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob still exist. And notice there that uh, Jesus used the inspired record of the Old Testament as inerrant and authoritative. And that he's able to make doctrinal points based upon the grammar and the uh, language of specific Bible verses. So that's a great example for us.
to understand the inspiration and the inerrancy of Scripture as well. The what do you say questions, we'll get back to you here if we have time at the end. Um, we might not get all the way through this here today, but this is some good review. We'll have other opportunities for review coming up as well. In fact, let's do one more, because we go till uh, 45 after, right? Alright, so let's, let's pick up the pace a little bit and do uh, chapter 2 also, and then we'll, we'll save the other chapters for future. Number one on chapter two. Many Christians blank take Bible verses out of context by blank the literary context. Well, what did you have for that? Yep. D. D. Right. They unintentionally take Bible verses out of context uh, by ignoring the literary context. So, number four, look at the literary context. Um, what is the literary context? Right. Uh, first of all, the book itself. And that's what we're going to remember here with number five. Remember that the basic unit of scripture is not the Bible verse, not the Bible chapter. It's the Bible book. That chapters and verses were added later. They were not inspired. But the books were written as a whole unit. And so we've got 66 units in our Bible. And that's why it's good to read whole books of the Bible. And good to read them in one sitting. And I remember one time I was, I was coming back from a ski trip in Colorado with our youth group, and I was, you know, had a long drive and uh, thought, well, I'm just going gonna, gonna to read the whole book of Revelation on my way back from a ski trip. And I still remember that. It's interesting, the impact that it had on me, just reading a whole book of Scripture like that. So that you're not just picking out a verse and thinking about it, but you get the whole big picture, and you recognize that basic unit of the book, and you see it in its context. All right? And then you read it over and over again. You don't just read it once. There's a great Bible study method for you guys, okay? If you want to know God, if you want to grow in your understanding of God, read whole books of the Bible and read them over and over again. You take a book like Ephesians. You read it once a day for a month. Now, after you've read the book of Ephesians, you know, six or seven times in a week, you're going to start to think, well, you know, I'm not getting anything out of this. I've, I've already read it seven times. I, I've seen everything that there is to see there. And you're going to start to get bored with the book. But if you push through that and you keep on reading the same book for the whole month, you are going to discover lots of things that you didn't see, lots of things that you didn't notice. And that's one of the things I really want to emphasize with you with hermeneutics is there is so much there that is in the Bible that you don't see and that you don't know and the best way to see it and to know it is not to have someone tell you about it, although that's what my job, I, I tell people about what's there in the Bible that they don't see. Uh, so I'm undermining myself in saying that. The best way for you to, to do that is to see it yourself. To keep on reading, to keep on meditating, to keep on being open. And the more you do that with every book in the Bible, it is going to revolutionize your relationship with God, your understanding of God, your ability to be wise, all of the things that are going to be really important to you in life. That just listening to older people teach is not everything that you need. In fact, if I give you a choice between listening to good Bible preaching and reading the Bible yourself, I'd say take the, the latter. Read the Bible yourself. That's the most important thing that you can do. Yeah. Well, it's also personal. Exactly. Bible, it's your own right. relationship yep. to not just what someone else We value saying. what we put work into. 
right? And if you discover it yourself, it's more valuable than somebody just giving it to you. Yeah. And we did all this work trying to make it so that that wasn't what we were doing. We literally had plenty of Christian, you know, heroes and such that broke off from the other church because that's all they did. Let's translate the Bible into a different language. Let's let's put this over here. Let's make it so that everybody can read the Bible and have their own standpoint. So we don't want to revert back to that because we saw what it did. I'm not quite following what you're He's saying. talking about like how... Uh, oh, I forgot his name. Martin Luther. Uh-huh. Like all of that fighting because back in that time, we had that to where it was just... Hey, let's teach you the Bible. Right, not the church told you what the Bible, the Bible said. Yourself. But it's once so. people got the Bible in their own language and can read it for themselves, that's when the truth was rediscovered and mm-hmm. passion was reignited and people really had that personal relationship with God. Good. All right. Uh, I said I was going to go faster, but here we go. Sermonizing, right? Um, number two. Principle number four states that we should take into account the blank before coming to an interpretation of the passage. So principle number four, literary context. Uh, what letter did you have for number two? <clears throat> yeah, the surrounding verses and chapters. So the book itself. Uh, remember the basic unit of scripture is the book. Understand books of the Bible. That's what you want. You want to know books. You want to understand books. You want them to be a part of you. Whole books, not just Bible verses that you learn in one. Nothing wrong with memorizing Bible verses, but... Uh, that's what you do when you're a kid. You grow up, you guys are teenagers, you read whole books of the Bible. <laughs> Number three, taking verses out of context is what? Three is C. C. That's right. Sometimes leads to the teaching of heresy. So it doesn't always, but if you take a verse out of context, it sometimes leads to heresy. Number four. According to the principle, look at the literary context, one of the best ways to study the Bible is what? Number four? What's that? That's yeah, right. Yeah, go book by book. Right here. That's, it's re-emphasizing what I've already been emphasizing. The basic unit of scripture is what? Everybody? The book. Good. Uh, number six. According to this principle, remember the basic unit of scripture. What should we look for in a book of the Bible? Which letter? Six is C, which has the letters for S-O-A-P. See that? Structure, occasion, argument, purpose. Soap. Now, letter B also has soap, um, and so does letter D. So they're really being tricky uh, with, their, with their question. They want to know, not only do you know soap, but do you know which uh, soap we're talking about here? Number seven, which letter? Books of the Bible, what? C. Yeah, we'll have varying kinds and complexities of outlines. Um, we've got a study Bible here, open to the book of Ruth, and it has an outline for the book. And now that's one outline, different study Bibles, different commentaries will have different outlines. But if you don't have a study Bible, I recommend you get a study Bible. The uh, English Standard Version has a study Bible, which is called the ESV Study Bible. It's an excellent study Bible. Uh, John MacArthur has a study Bible that I've used. Uh, I've used other study Bibles in my life. I don't use study Bibles as much anymore because I've already used them so much, and I've been to seminary, and I know most of the stuff that's in there. But you guys, who are uh, young like I was, use a study Bible like I did to, to grow in my understanding of books of the Bible. So each book of the Bible will have an introduction. It'll tell you about the historical background. It'll tell you about the literary context. 
give you the author and the date and the purpose of the book and some of the difficulties that are there, the, the big ideas, the themes of the book. So that's a great way to get to know books of the Bible is to, to use the study Bible. And then you read the book over and over again after reading the introduction. Or you read the book and then you go back and check the introduction. Something like that. Alright? So, uh, number eight, the particular situation that existed when the book was written may have to do with what? D. Yeah, any or all of the above. What was going on in the reader's lives, a problem that needed to be addressed, a current event, uh, any of those could be the situation. And the situation is part of the occasion. Back in number six, the soap, uh, letter C, the occasion is part of that particular situation. The occasion could be what's going on in their lives, a problem that needed to be addressed, or a current event. Number nine, the argument of the book. Also from soap, uh, the A is the argument. The argument of the book is what? Letter. A. A, right. It's overall line of reasoning. Nine is A. And then number ten, discerning a reason, the reason. A Bible author wrote his book. Is it impossible? No. Is it clearly stated in some point in every book? Afraid not. Is it irrelevant because the Holy Spirit is the main author? No, that's not true either. Uh, so it must be letter D. It affects the reason a person may have for reading it. Uh, if you want to know the reason the author wrote the book, that might have something to do with why you want to read the book. Alright, so 10 is D. Now, with that in mind, let's go ahead and take a break from going over the exam. And let's break up into our small groups. And so, very similar to what you have done, we'll have the ladies split into two groups. Uh, the guys, you're missing one of your leaders, but one of you guys can step up as, and be the leader. Levi. <laughs> Sam. So, two groups of guys, two groups of girls, and discuss the... What do you say questions from the first four chapters of the exam book? Separate and form groups. It's all right, just... Everybody's got their exam in front of them? I do not see you. I can do a big 